You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. This is my son, by the way. (laughs) I'm wanting to say, come on, hurry up. What are you doing? (laughs) Thanks, Ethan. Hi, it's good to see you. It's good to see all of you here at Rolling Meadows. Awesome to be here, and also great to have the rest of you join us by the webs. And um, we're going to study God's Word together in the next few minutes. But uh, before we do that, I wanted to give you a quick announcement slash update regarding uh, how we ended the year financially. We were making all sorts of requests of people doing videos and saying, hey, this is our need. This is the amount at the end of or sorry, at the beginning of uh, December, we ended up announcing saying we needed about 2.5 something million dollars in order to meet our need at the end of the year. Uh, we can show the little thing here. We came a little bit short of it, $181,000, but can you look at that middle one that's in, 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 in uh, white? $2.35 million given in a single month. Woo! Isn't that great? Uh, look, the Lord uh, has given us exactly the amount of money that we need as a church. Uh, he knows ahead of time, right? You make plans, and we say we're going to go into this city or give, raise this much money, and uh, we say, if the Lord wills. And this is what he's willed, and we're so f- pleased uh, about that, and also just wanted to encourage you. I'm so proud of this church and for the people here uh, regarding the response and the generosity that they have. Uh, one of the cool things that happened at the end of the year is we had, I don't know, a lot of new givers to the church, which, uh, listen, it's not like I sit down and I go through each of these and like look up Facebook for the names on oh, a new person. Uh, I don't actually, I'm told uh, about the new givers, but um, that's usually a sign that, the pe- that there are people who come to the church who are really starting to engage. And that's, that's really what we really want. We're not, the money is peripheral. It's the involvement in the church and the importance of that in the life of a Christian that we're really after, okay? So, so thankful for all of that. Thank you. Awesome. 2023 is going to be awesome. We've got some really great things going on this year. We'll get to that later, though. Now it's time for us to study the Word of God. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It won't surprise you that uh, when I'm walking around town from time to time, or uh, some people see me in different places, even after church or whatever, it's not uncommon for someone to tell me what, it, what they think I should be preaching on. And by that, I mean, okay, usually what we do is we, we believe in preaching through books of the Bible, but there are some times where, you know, you pick a subject and then you preach a sermon about that particular subject, a little topical sermon, Everybody's got a sermon in their mind about a topic. They just don't always get to share it with the pastor. You usually go home and you share it with your spouse or your friends. You end up saying, oh, well, I wish the church would preach on. Mm. So here are some of the ones that I've, I've received uh, guidance on. Uh, one time I got a two-page letter from a dear woman in, in another church that I was serving, and she told me, how important it was that I preach about the dangers of sugar. I thought it was funny because while I was reading it, I was eating a cookie, uh, and it was not a non-sugar cookie. And, uh, but I was supposed to do this because, you know, the health challenges, as we've come to realize that sugar can cause some difficulties. And she was like, if you want people to be healthy, not just in spirit, but in body, you should be, you should be telling them about the dangers of sugar. Uh, I thought then to myself, okay, well, maybe we won't, I won't eat sugar. So I was in the hallway one time, uh, and I was standing there with a Coke Zero in my hand. I think I've told you this before, and a guy came up to me. It's not here at the church, this church, but he came up to me, and he started telling me about how I need to preach a sermon about the dangers of aspartame. And while, seriously, while he was talking, but I was drinking... He didn't seem to clue in to the irony of it at all. He was, he was giving me his sermon right there. You can do it in these three points. Aspartame's evil. It's, you're going to hell if you drink it. And <laughs> drink away. One of the things that's been uh, a bit of a challenge for me, actually, is when I'm coming from the Pacific Northwest where I grew up, and then, of course, 
uh, living in Canada for, uh, for in the west coast of Canada for uh, 15 years, one of the things that they believe in that part of the world is that you can be saved through recycling, um, you know. <laughs> but I've come here to the Midwest, and when I first arrived, I would drink, you know, a, a bottle of something, and then I'd hold on to the bottle, and I'd say, um, where's the recycling bin? And people would look at me and go, hmm, I don't, I'm not sure we have one of those. I think they have those, like, down at the police station or something. And I'm like, oh. And so I would actually collect these bottles and cans, and I would end up having to hand them to a person on our staff. And I'd say, can you take care of these for me? And they'd be like, yeah, can't you throw them away? If I throw them away, I will feel like I'm sinning against God and his planet and stuff. So you take them, and you handle them. And they would say, yeah, okay, I will. I'd say, what are you going to do with them? I'm not going to tell you, you know? <laughs> I'd find them in the trash later, later on. But, you know, that, that's a big deal for some, for some people. That if you, if you care for the earth, because it's God's earth, then you're going to recycle or use an electric car or drive an electric scooter, which is really what everybody should be doing because that's actually God's way. Jesus would be riding on a scooter if he lived in our time here. You know, the difficulty with these sorts of things, by the way, that was a joke. I ride an electric scooter. Some of you are going to be like, why is he into the electric scooter thing? I was just... The difficulty with some of these things, though, is that there aren't any clear biblical commands or prohibitions against them, right? It's not like you can go into the scriptures and say, uh, in Second Opinions 4.6, it says, thou shalt not drink Coke syrup. It, usually, people come to that conclusion because they have another theological you know, conviction. They're like, well, yeah, my body's a temple, and therefore I should do these things. And then they list out all the things. The problem with all the list out of all those things is that there's no like biblical material saying that those are the exact applications to that command. But we love to make up our lists, don't we? There's the command and then there's the stuff we do about the command and we want to principalize the stuff we do about the command. And there's massive disagreements among Christians over those applications of the command. It's not uncommon for people to ask pastoral wisdom from me, either by email or sitting in a room together. Hey, we've got this particular challenge. We just need to know, should we attend the gay wedding? When, when somebody asks me to use, that, they, that they identify using these pronouns, and it's clearly not what their biological sex is, should I go with that? Like, what's the, is there a particular Christian response or approach to that kind of thing? I have a friend who doesn't want to celebrate Halloween, and they've given me this long list of things that are wrong with Halloween and where it came from. And they say that Christians, faithful Christians, shouldn't celebrate Halloween because it's a celebration of the occult. Should I celebrate Halloween? Or not, or not. What about Christmas? Christmas has a pagan history. It's actually derived from the holiday called Saturnalia. It's a pagan holiday. You bring a tree inside your house so that you can perpetuate the idea that you're keeping the outside world alive until spring comes, right? But did you bring a tree in your house this year? Sinners. Right. So, but we love to make our rules. And if you meet somebody sometime, they'll be like, yeah, actually, you shouldn't do that. We don't do that. We don't go on holidays like this. We don't do this. And we've got our list. So we're in the new series. We're going to finish 1 Corinthians over the next number of weeks. Dirty church. The 1 Corinthians church was a mess, just like our churches are. And that's why it's such an appropriate book for us to study we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians 8 to 16, and that's that first passage, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 13, that we're going to study here today. And one, what we're going to try to understand from it is how is it that you and I can live together peacefully and lovingly when we disagree about so many questionable things?
And if you think that we don't disagree about questionable things, I have one word for you. COVID. So it's relevant, yes? I mean, this is, we fight about so many things. What do we do about the stuff that doesn't seem to be a clear, you know, there's a command of Scripture, but then the stuff we're fighting about is the application of that command. What do we, what do, we do about that? Well, here, I want to study this passage in three steps. Number one, I want to give you the situation that's going on in the passage itself. You can't really understand this passage unless you understand the historical background that's taking place here, right? It's a very different from the world we live in. So I want to give you the situation. Second, I want to give you Paul's response. We're just going to walk through the text so that you can see, given that background, exactly what he says. And then finally, I want to give you three principles uh, that we learned from the text and his interaction with them that I think would be helpful for us when it comes to the question of how do we live together and love together when we disagree about so many of these things. All right, so here's the first of those, <clears throat> the situation. Let me show you the first words of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning, here it is, food offered to idols. And everybody's ears in the room and all over the place perked up because that's exactly what you were talking about on your way to church today, right? You were thinking to yourself, you know, I just don't know what to do with the meat sacrificed to idols. Should I eat it? Should I not? It's a very different issue than what you and I face. So let me tell you about why it was an issue for them. Everything in the world in years gone by was religious. I would actually argue that everything now is religious. It's just the people who say, I'm not religious, are like the most religious. Everyone's religious on some level or another. They were just more open about it then. In the city of Corinth, there were temples to all sorts of different gods all around the place. You could have your pick. Lots and lots of gods and goddesses. And the way that you would worship these gods and goddesses was different maybe in the different religious tradition, but... Generally speaking, you would sacrifice animals to them. The gods would sometimes need you to sacrifice the animals to them so they could eat. And they liked certain portions of the animal instead of others, at least according to that particular religious tradition. And so you would take your animal, you'd show up to the temple, give it to the priest or whoever is the priestess. They would kill that animal along with you, and maybe through a prayer or an incantation, they would basically pass the ownership of the animal from you to the deity. So now it's the deities. They take, you'd butcher the animal then, they'd take all of the organs out, lay them on a table, and they would determine by the state of the organs whether the deity had accepted this as a as a righteous sacrifice, as, as something acceptable. So like if you have a wonky stomach or whatever there, that's not, that's the deity's sign, I don't like it. Bad heart, whatever, bad stomach, you know, maybe it's a cow and there's four stomachs. If there's only three, it's like, no, don't, that doesn't work. So they take all of these organs and then they would burn those organs or cook those organs to the deity, right? The smell from the sacrifice would go up to the deity. And he would be pleased by that particular thing. And these organs would be the, I mean, the guts basically of the animal were his. The most important living parts of the animal were his. But what would be left over would usually be the, like the meat, the stuff that you and I care most about these days. You get the meat there. What do you do with the meat? Well, the worshiper, the person who's just brought the animal in and everything, they're going to sit down and they're going to start eating the meat, but they're not going to eat alone. You eat the meat in the temple with a group of other people that are, you know, that are there for one particular purpose. And the purpose might be, hey, we're having a wedding. Go and you sit down and, you know, they bring the food to you. That food was just sacrificed to an idol and a god, a so-called god, to protect your wedding, to protect your marriage. If you had your teacher's union meeting, you would sacrifice an animal to the god of teachers, right? Education Marash. I, I don't know what the name of the god is. 
But you would, you would you'd worship that particular god or goddess so that they would give favor over your teaching and that you, as a trade guild or as a, as a union, would sit down together and you would eat the, the, move, the food. And it was all sacrificed to an idol. So if you grew up in this particular area, you, you ate meat sacrificed to idol. In fact, it was the only place you usually ate the meat. People, it's not like these days where, you know, it, we eat meat every single day. They might eat meat occasionally once a month, and it was almost always at these kinds of events. Now, your teacher's union is not going to be able to eat all the meat. You guys aren't that hungry. So what you would do with the leftover meat is that they would take that meat and they'd sell it in the marketplaces, in the butcher's shop. So people come by and they'd, they'd buy it and they'd cook it at home. The point I'm making is all the meat is sacrificed to idols. <laughs> Which is why the Jewish people didn't eat any of that meat. They were like, this is outrageous, right? And they had certain food laws. And if they were going to prepare a meat, right, it had to be kosher. There had to be a certain approach to, to it that made it holy. But if you lived in that time... The problem that you would have as a Christian is that you would have just come from that pagan religious tradition where you ate meat as a worship act to an idol or to a god. You would come into the Christian faith, and now by going back to those events, right, to going to the wedding, going to the trade guild meeting, going to the union meeting, you would be basically participating in the worship of the god you just repented of believing in. So in the church, the question you're having is, wait a minute. If I believe that Jesus is the only true God, God is one, why would I go back? Didn't you just tell me that I need to turn around from all of that and come apart from it? And now you're saying that it's okay for us to go back and eat the meat and worship the... I don't get it. What's the difference then of me being a Christian or not being a Christian? And some people in the church were like, well, you know, if you really want to be spiritual, you'll never eat that meat again, ever. And other people were like, ah, come on, man. It's not a real deity that you're worshiping. We know that. Get over it. Uh, Robert Plummer, who's a commentator on this passage, wrote a really good article on it. He, he, he summarized the whole thing this way. He said, as the pagan Corinthians came to faith in Christ and broke with their idolatrous past, a number of important ethical decisions had to be made. Though it was obviously wrong to worship a false god, was it wrong to attend a social or civil function in the pagan temples? If your neighbor was getting married, was there anything wrong with attending the ceremony in the pagan temple and then eating the hors d'oeuvres, which of course just happened to be sacrificed to an idol? Or on a related matter, was it wrong to buy meat from a butcher who first slaughtered the meat in the precincts of the pagan temples. What if you personally didn't have a problem with eating idol meat, but the practice offended a Christian brother or, or sister, who, and they tempted them to engage in activity that he or she regarded as forbidden? See, it was questions like these that stirred the Corinthians to write the Apostle Paul and ask for his guidance. And this is their question. Uh, hey, Paul, see this now concerning? They asked him, in a letter that they wrote him, hey, what do we do about this? Look, let me try to put this in as modern day as I can. This is my best go at it, right? Best go for a modern equivalent. Uh, say a Hindu person moves from India where they've worshipped their gods and goddesses and celebrated that largely through yoga. They come to the faith in Jesus, move to the United States. They go to church one day newish Christian, has departed from that religious practice of yoga, and you say to them, oh, it's so great to meet you. You should join me at the hot yoga. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, we have a group from our church that all goes and does the hot yoga because yoga's really good when it's hot. Cold yoga, not as good. Hot yoga, and that person says to you, wait a minute, aren't you worshiping a, you're a Christian? You go and you worship these guys? Oh, no, it's just stretching. We don't believe that kind of stuff. In fact, I pray to Jesus while I'm doing it. What? Wait, what? It, that's, but that's not what it is. It's, it's, 
It's a worship act. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Ah! It's probably the best. I had a friend, he and I debated this on a podcast. We got so many people responding to it. So many people, because this is something we fight about. What should we do? What should we do? Well, that's what Paul tries to answer, okay? So the situation, and then here's his, here's his response. Now concerning food uh, offered to idols. <clears throat> Look, we, we know that, notice these quotation marks, all of us possess knowledge. This is probably a Corinthian slogan. You know, different churches have different slogans. It's okay not to be okay. Everyone's welcome here, right? You are loved. This, this is a slogan that they had. Look, all of us possess knowledge. They believed that because they had right thinking, and they did on this subject, because they had right thinking, they didn't need to accommodate anybody else's like less thinking. So if you didn't agree with me, the reason is because you're kind of further down on the knowledge scale. I have received this knowledge from God that's true, and therefore we need to act in line with this knowledge, not in line with your less than knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. And Paul's like, yeah, well, look, we know that. Yeah, that's true. We do possess knowledge. That's what it means to grow in Christ, is to get more knowledge in the mind of Christ, to understand how the world works according to his viewpoint. This knowledge, though, Paul says, puffs up, but love builds up. Guys, this is the main point of the entire thing. If you don't listen to anything else, just memorize that line. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay, a number of years ago, I was working in, uh, in, a, in a farming community as a youth pastor. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, and um, I didn't know anything at all about cars. Basically, still don't. E- even in those days early on, when my, I think my dad at one point had told me that the car uses oil, I didn't know where that went anyway, so it didn't matter. Right? So you drive the car around, and eventually the engine starts going click, 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 click. And I'm like, it's broken. The car's broken. We need another one. Well, I, I'm living in this farming community, and I go to the, I go to the local um, machinery spot, mostly tractors outside there. This guy stereotypically comes out. He's got straw in his mouth, a big old hat, this, you know, Joe on his thing there, big old gut, and he walks out there and and he said, let me have a look. And he opens, he opens the hood, which took me like a minute or two. I don't, how do you do that? Is there a lever? And he was like, whoa, this is going to be a problem. Anyway, he goes in, opens the hood, it comes up. He, he grabs the dipstick, right, where the oil is, and he pulls it out, takes his little rag, wipes it off, dips it back in, pulls it out, nothing. He said, did you know that cars use oil? And I said, do they? Does that go in where the gas goes in? Do you put it in? Is there a special gas that you put in there? He said, no, it lubricates the engine while it's functioning. And the reason it's clicking is because there's no lubricant in it because there's no oil in here. Didn't your daddy, (laughs) didn't your daddy ever teach you to change the oil? Now the answer is no. He didn't, right? He didn't. But this question... This question, when he is asking it to me, it has a particular meaning. See, what he's got is more knowledge than I do about cars. And he's absolutely right in his knowledge. But he can use that knowledge in two different ways. He can use it to puff himself up. In other other words, to draw attention to himself and how much more he knows than me. And because he knows more than me, he's better than me. And what he would say if he believed that was... Didn't your daddy ever teach you to change oil? And that's what he means. You city slicker, suburban kid, you're going to have a tough time out here if you don't understand how cars work. That's That's what he means. We're better than you. I'm better than you. Knowledge puffs up. It focuses on the person. But love... Builds up. See, the other way that he could have handled that is said to, him, said, said to me, yeah, this is a challenge that we see lots of times with lots of different people. 
here's the way it works. You got to put the oil in here. You have to put this much in. You got to get it changed this frequently. Let me help you out. You can either change it yourself by doing it this way, or you can take it to the shop and get it changed. It costs about this much money. One of those is a loving, hey, let me bring you along to the knowledge that I have. And the other one is, I have this knowledge and you're stupid because you don't have it. You guys know who, I call some people actually people. You know actually people? Actually people are, like anytime you say anything in any sentence, they'll say, well, actually. Actually, that's not 100% true. I went to a class on one time and Googled it and I found, stop. But actually, you shouldn't tell me to stop. That, that is basically, hey, I have more knowledge than you, therefore I'm better than you. Knowledge puffs up. But love uses that knowledge and uses it to in order to bring that person along. So what Paul's saying here is, look, you guys have knowledge. He's going to describe the knowledge you have. You have knowledge about how this, how, what idols are, how real they are. But be careful that you don't use that knowledge in a way that is going to demean everybody else who doesn't know what you know, but instead that is going to build them up so that they will know what you know. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And every 70-year-old in the room said, that's right. I'm 50, and I look back to 36-year-old me, and I'm like, you're an idiot. Because I didn't know as I ought to know. Imagine what you're going to do when you stand in heaven with the Lord. You're going to look back at your whole life and go, that was a mess. (laughs) Right? Because I didn't see as I see now. I don't understand as I do now. The reason I didn't trust is because I didn't see everything the way that I should have seen it. So even if you have knowledge, you're always going to get more. He says, so be careful being all arrogant about it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, the Corinthians were basically thinking the way that you, there's a spiritual scale. And the highest part of the spiritual scale was, hey, I know stuff. I know stuff about God. And God likes people who know stuff better than everyone else. So if you know stuff, you're high on the scale. If you don't know stuff, you're low on the scale. What Paul's saying, no, no, no. If you, if you want the scale of being known by God, it's based on love. It's not based on knowledge. It's not based on some experience, spiritual experience you had. It's based on how you love. Therefore, As to the eating of food offered to idols. All right, let's deal with the issue itself. Look, we know, this is the knowledge we have, that an idol has no real existence. Notice the quotation marks. He's quoting them and basically saying, yeah, that's true. An idol has no real, it's just a piece of wood, guys. And you walk in there and as a Christian, you should be like, well, it's a nice piece of wood. How long will it take you to carve it? Don't talk about the wood that way. That's the God. No, it really isn't. An idol has no real existence. And look, there is only one God, but one. This is a quotation of the Old Testament. There's only one God. And Paul adds to it, for although there may be, look at the language, so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are, according to the world, there are many gods and many lords. If you go to any other religion, they're claiming that all of their gods and all of those, they're all true, but Paul's like, they're not. They're just so-called Yet for us, there is one God because we know that God is the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Can I just tell you something really cool about this? We have one God, and then right here, Paul points out, yeah, but there's two persons. There's another one as well, but here's two persons. He basically builds, says Jesus is God right here. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He talks about the Father and Son here. That's the truth. That's what's true about the immaterial world. That's the true about the universe. There's one God. And then a bunch of people have a bunch of so-called gods that they sort of made up for a bunch of reasons. That's what's true. That's the knowledge we all have. However... 
Not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, they used to go to the temple and this was their life. They were growing up with their mom and dad. They went to the weddings. They went to the temple feasts. They went to all the stuff. They ate the food. They believed the idols were real. Those people, even as Christians, still believe that they eat that food is really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak, that means that it's just not high enough, it's not higher on the scale of knowledge, is defiled. Because they think that when they're going and eating this stuff, they're actually worshiping a deity. You don't think that because you're right about it, but they think that. So how should you treat them? Look, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Praise, praise God. Food will not commend us to God, including sugar and aspartame and steak and, right? Food will not commend us. It doesn't matter, is what he's saying. You know, God's not going to stand for, him, for you and goes, let's just look at your diet. When did you realize that the paleo diet was the right time? It's not, he's not, he's not going to do that. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. It's not a big deal. In fact, it's a category of like not right or wrong, but indifferent. But take care that this right of yours, right of yours to do what? Well, to eat whatever does not somehow become, look at the word, a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block is when you and I are running through the forest and you're following me because I'm fast. And I take a bunch of sticks and I throw them down behind me because I want you to trip and fall so that I can win. This is an act of what, love? No, actually it's an act of competition. It's an act kind of of hatred. I take the sticks, I take the marbles, I place them all down there so that you will trip and fall and not be able to finish the race. And what Paul's saying here is, look, we are all in a race following Jesus. We want to get to the end faithfully, but when you're running next to somebody who's weak and you start taking the branches and throwing them down in front of them, what's the likelihood that they're going to finish? So when you take this weak brother or sister and you treat them with contempt by not realizing the way they see things, you're throwing stumbling blocks out in front of them and they might not finish this race if you do. They might go back to the very religious tradition that they repented of. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? I point this out to seize you. Guys, this is right where we figure out, oh, this is what you're talking about. He's not talking about you sitting down in your home and having a meal privately. He's, he's not talking about, you know, what you do on your own. In order for someone to see you eating in the idol temple, they have to be with you in the idol's temple. It's not, well, the idol temple has a patio and you walk by and are like, oh, is that meat sacrificed to the idol center? There, there aren't patios. It's in the idol temple. And so what he's saying is, look, if you end up taking somebody who is weak in this faith, it doesn't have the freedom that you have, and you drag them to the idol temple and you put them in a situation sitting next to you where you're eating and you're forcing them to eat, you're defiling their conscience. Don't bring them there. He's not saying don't ever eat any meat. Don't bring them there. Think about their situation. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. <laughs> He's the brother for whom Christ died. You guys, if, if you want to know the attitude you should have toward people who don't have knowledge, just think about the attitude Jesus had toward you. Right? You didn't know all this stuff. He came from heaven. He knew all the stuff. He came down and he condescended to you and me and gave his life for the unknowing. 
So how should you act towards your brothers and sisters who are unknowing? Well, like Christ does, which is Paul's point, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, summary, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. This is hyperbole. This is how serious I am about it, says Paul, that I will never eat a single piece of meat if that eating of meat would cause my brother not to finish the race. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So you guys see see his argument here. Basically, yes, you have knowledge, you have freedom, but that freedom needs to be used in a way that is edifying and not tearing down of the weaker brother and sister. Right, so let's do some principles then, okay? Let's do some principles. I got three of them. Number one, when you are trying to figure out how to live peacefully and lovingly with brothers and sisters who have massive disagreements over these disputable sort of matters, you have to start with good theology. You have to start with good theology. You notice that's what Paul does, right? I mean, at the very beginning, he starts by talking about how knowledge puffs up and loves it. He basically takes the issue that the Corinthians are facing, and he says, before we get into this, let's address all of the theological issues that address it. We're not going to look at this from the vantage point of just the pragmatics of it. We're not going to talk about it, how the PR would work out. We're not going to talk about it, what the financial cost. We are actually going to look at it by the word of God. So what's true about God? Well, God is one. Jesus is God. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. This is basically the way that Paul deals with almost everything in the book of 1 Corinthians. In the beginning of the book, he's dealing with divisions in the church and people thinking that one pastor is a bigger celebrity than the other pastor. And he comes along and he says, so let's start with some theology, right? I planted Apollos water, but God gives the growth, right? Let's start with some theology and understand what the church is and what's supposed to happen in the church and how people are going to be judged in the church. And that he applies all of his theology so that the practice just sort of flows out naturally. Women aren't having sex with their husbands, 1 Corinthians 7, which for some reason was included in the letter that they sent to him. Most of the husbands, we need to include that. These ladies aren't having sex with their husbands because they think they're like the angels. And so Paul comes along and says, let's talk about how Jesus tells us about marriage. What what, what are the rights and obligations in, in marriage? Most of the New Testament is basically the Apostle Paul approaching a situation, taking the gospel and the knowledge that he has about God and slapping it on top of it and saying, okay, now how should we look at this? He starts, in other words, with theology And the practice flows from the good theology. Theology informs our practice. So listen, that means that if you and I really want to live Christianly in an unchristian society, we have to think theologically. We must see the issues through kingdom of God eyes and not kingdom of this world eyes. Oh, right, right. I've shown you this before. This is the way that Paul sees, uh, Paul sees the world. He b- believes that there's a kingdom of this world that is passing away. And it has a whole bunch of rules. You know the rules. You're told them every day. You see them on billboards. They're repeated to you constantly. Do these things, do these things, and you'll be happy. But there's the kingdom of God that is broken in by the power of Jesus. And this one is eternal. You are a citizen Of this one, you've been transferred from citizenship here to citizenship there. So how shall thou now live? As a citizen of the kingdom of God, you are a stranger and an alien living in this particular time and place. You need to have your mind renewed according to your new citizenship. And so when you come to issues and questions about what you should be doing in the future, what college should I go to? Whether should I should celebrate Halloween? (laughs) Like whatever. You don't see it through the eyes of the world and all the pragmatics of it. You start by seeing it through the eyes of the kingdom because that's who you are. 
And that's what's going to last forever and ever. So let's get really practical then. Let's get really practical. What would that look like? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, One, I've shared with you before. Uh, My last church, we were going to do a funding campaign for, uh, for a building. Before I insisted that before we get together and do the funding campaign and talk about, you know, how the campaign works, because there's a bunch of rules for that, and you can Google it, and you can bring in advisors for it, and this is how you raise money, and we take this cut. There's a whole bunch of things that they do. So before we do any of that, and some of that will be really helpful, before we do any of that, shouldn't we start by saying, okay, what's true about God's church? What's true about money? What's true about all of those things before we get into the idea of raising more? So I sat our elders and everybody else in a room, and I went for an hour talking about, okay, so whatever we do has to include the value of the widow's might. She's got nothing. Jesus says she gave more than everyone else, even though it was pittance. So whatever we do has to value the pittance that the nobodies give. There's no favoritism in the kingdom of God. So we're not going to give like special treatment to somebody who's got more cash. We went down the line with all of these things. We brought that then to our fundraising stuff and it eliminated a bunch of stupid things that we could have been doing but would, would be kingdoms of this world things. Yes, Jeff, but I'm not going to be raising money for a church anytime soon. Okay, how about the using of pronouns? Uh, what kind of theological facts would we bring in to inform us about that? Well, uh, number one, that God defines reality. There is an absolute truth that he defines that is outside of me. So I might feel a particular way, but that feeling is judged by his statements about what's true. He also knit you together in your mother's womb. God does not make mistakes regarding who you are how big you are or little you are or what you look like or whatever, whether you like dolls or like, he, you don't, he didn't make a mistake in creating you. He actually takes pleasure in creating you. You should take pleasure as, all, as well in his beautiful creation of you. But also the Christian church, we believe in hospitality. We don't like Jesus. We don't come in just here's what I need you all to do. Like we, we, we come and we incarnate. We come together with people. We start where they are, not where we think they ought to be. Now, all of that is going to influence the way you do it. Now, you might come to a conclusion that's different than me. And then we're going to fight about it, right? Which leads me to number two. Number one, start with good theology. Second, embrace the indifferences. Embrace the in. Differences. You guys noticed that little passage in First Corinthians, in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's basically saying, look, most of us operate in these categories. There's right and there's wrong. And if you want to be an honest person, you have to embrace those categories. There's right and there's wrong, right? The Ten Commandments are right. The things that are against them are wrong. The problem comes, what about these disputable things? What about Halloween? So what people want to do here is, well, since there's only two categories, Halloween is here. No, it's not. It's here. Because we only have two categories But what Paul's done basically in this passage is he said, no, 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 there's a third category. There's right and there's wrong. And then there's, you ready for this best word of your day? You guys use this later today. You get extra credit before God. (laughs) There's adiaphora. The word means indifferences. It means indifferences. It means it's not right. It's not wrong. It's kind of a personal taste. Adiaphora, I'm wearing blundstones today. Adiaphora, well, I hate blundstones. Jesus wouldn't wear them. Okay, but it's not right or wrong to wear them. I ride a particular kind of bike. It's not right or wrong. You go on particular vacations. It's not right or wrong. We all want to place everything in these two categories. But Paul's saying there's a huge category of adiaphora. 
We don't like it. We don't act like that. We, we want the rules. You should not have Easter eggs on Easter. You should never talk about Santa Claus. Satan Claus. You, you should never drink wine out in public. You should never play cards. You should never buy that thing. You should never buy this thing. You should never go on Instagram and show people that you're celebrating a particular holiday because what happens if they see you and feel like that's a bad thing? See, there's right and there's wrong, but there's not just right and wrong. There's adiaphora, disputable stuff. And Paul's like, you've got to have a big category of disputable stuff here. You do. The rules for adiaphora are not the rules for right and wrong. Right and wrong, you fight over. Adiaphora, you show grace over. And listen to me very closely. The worst thing in the entire Christian life is a graceless church. The worst thing is a church that wants to delineate constantly where the Bible does not delineate. The dear friend who grew up in a very legalistic background, right? Where they made rules for everything. Everything. What you wear, what you see, how you talk, what you own, how long church is. Everything. He ended up abandoning the whole thing, you know, when he was 18, 19 years old. Because he was like, I don't ever want to step into a church ever again. If God is like that, I want nothing to do with him. So he went off and he lived his life. He actually ended up coming to, to our church. And after about a few years being there, he showed up quite frequently. I think his kids forced him to come along. But after a few years, I remember talking to him and he told me, I just wanted to thank you because this is not the same kind of church that I ever attended. And this is not the same kind of God that I was told about. That when I come to this church, I experience grace over all the stuff. And that's so freeing to me. And I'm like, yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it lovely to know that the Lord Jesus gives you massive freedoms to live out your Christianity in a way that you want to? Love God, do what you want. But there's a problem with that, Jeff. How are we going to keep people in check? Well, there are rules around adiaphora. Paul gives one here. What is, the, what is the rule? Well, this is the third thing and last thing. The rule is use your freedom to build up, not tear down others. You use your freedom to build up and not tear down others. See, knowledge puffs up, but love Builds up. Knowledge focuses on me. I want everyone to understand how free I am in Christ. But love is going to say, I want to help other people have freedom in Christ. And in, until that happens, I'm going to do what Jesus did. Give my life for them. For the weaker brother, I'm going to accommodate them. And you say, well, what would that look like? Well, look, when the, when the Hindu comes into your church, the former Hindu, and you start having this, this is right, no, it's not, like, you know immediately at this particular moment, you should never make that person feel like they're missing out on Christian community because they're not at yoga. You should never set up like a birthday party for them. Guess what we're doing? Hot yoga! Because you're going to lead them into a place that's going to cause them to sin. Look, the person who came out of a drunken past should probably not be invited to the bar with the boys. That doesn't mean that you say, well, let's not invite him, we're still gonna go. No, love would say we can find something else to do. Top golf is great. <laughs> this sermon brought to you by Top Golf. <laughs> what, what about the somebody who's got a history in porn addiction? They've repented of that. Well, maybe you should think twice about the kinds of movies you see together. You might have a freedom to see a particular kind of movie that they don't. If they're like, oh, I don't know. You know what? The first thing is, oh, we don't need to see that. You can go see the other ones. There's lots of really good ones that we can go see that don't involve you having to delve your mind through some sort of racy details. 
If you think that Jesus isn't serious about this, just let me, let me quote him. Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So here's my last word. A good friend who gave me three rules for leadership, the third rule for leadership I have found to be enormously helpful. If you want to be a good leader, always start where people are, not where you think they ought to be. I mentioned it before. Always start where people are, not where you think they ought to be. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are not necessarily at the same level of knowledge that you are. Your response to that is not to puff up your chest and make them feel stupid for not believing the things you do right now. Your response to that is to accommodate them the best they can, best you can, as you build them up in love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So let's be builders. We pray. Father, I'm thankful for this passage. Uh, that is actually quite practical when we start thinking about this is an issue that the church has faced so many times, so many of these issues. Lord, would you help us to have a big category of uh, adiaphora? Would you help us to have hearts that love, that look to build others up as opposed to give ourselves fame and importance because we know more? And ultimately, Lord, would you help our theology to drive this forward? Would you help us to think well about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God so that we can end up determining the right good things for us and our families living in this very unchristian, hostile place, was to be good aliens and strangers who both honor the kingdom that's eternal and coming and also live faithfully and missionally toward those in the kingdom that is passing away. Spirit, come and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.